the sleeper in the bus. There's skill, there's luck. A keeper or cut. Open file, a case shut. A short stop or stop short. Press play or press abort. Intelligence for sports. Good of y'all to listen. Aiming at what truth is. Mike and Eno pitching like the name is Michael Lewis. Others in the dust or left out to rust. Who's hitting? Who's missing? The sleeper in the bus. The sleeper in the bus. Hello out there in Fantasyland, and welcome to The Sleeper and the Bust. I'm Mike Podhorzer, and I'm joined today by Rotograph's editor, Eno Saris. Today we'll be discussing actual playoff heroes, because last time we talked about potential playoff heroes, and the value-based fantasy all-stars. So, Eno, how much did you have on Jose Lobatone and Juan Uribe hitting the game-winning home runs? (laughs) Yeah, we did not discuss those two when we were talking about people who could up their stock next year. In fact, uh, I doubt that they did up their stock. Yeah, uh, I, I don't think that their draft cost is going to be too inflated next year, which is good <laughs> for all of the Lobatone and Uribe fans out there. You can still get them as cheaply as you wanted next year. Uh, you know what's funny is that one of um, one of Petriello's uh, bold predictions was that Juan Uribe would be owned at some point this season. Juan Uribe would be owned in more than five percent of leagues. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, for one day it was five point one percent on one platform. So <laughs> he declared himself the victor. <laughs> All right, so let's get to our most interesting player alive today, and that's Jeremy Hellickson. And he actually gets to start tonight for the Rays in Game Four. It's going to be against Jake Peavy and the Red Sox. And the team is down 2-1. to one. They're counting on Jeremy Hellickson. I can't imagine if you are a Rays fan, you would be very confident in Hellickson being the guy. Yeah, I mean, he definitely had a terrible year. Um, and, uh, you know, even the bright spots were not so bright. So, uh, I mean, it, I have this tweet here from, from Jonah, uh, Jonah Carey saying, Tonight's race starter, Jeremy Hellickson, third worst ERA among all qualified starting pitchers, despite playing a pitcher's park with a good D behind him. How come they didn't go with Chris Archer? Was this a decision that they were debating between? I'm not, I don't understand why they would go with Hellickson. Uh, I bet you Archer is still there and is still, you know, the next guy in line. Um, oh, so... for, for a possible game seven, I understand. No, no, no. I mean <laughs> that Archer is like in pocket for tonight. Yeah, yeah, I, I that uh, you know first sign of trouble. You know, the, the, if the if the game goes into the danger zone, there comes uh, there comes Archer Archer out the out the door. Yeah, so Hellickson is an interesting case because for his first two years, he significantly outperformed all of his ERA estimators. His skills were mediocre at best, and he was becoming one of those guys that every year he's just going to outperform. And there were all kind of explanations of. Uh, what he does with men on base to maintain a high left on base percentage, to maintain a, a low Babbitt. And then it all came crashing down this year. And now you have to question, and it's funny because his skills actually improved a bit this year. And now you have to wonder, was this year just a a fluke in terms of bad performance? Or was this just making up for all of his good luck? And it was good luck, and he never possessed those skills to begin with. And this is just p- the pendulum swinging the other way. Um, you know, it's there's a little bit of both because you know what's interesting in the first half he had a four six seven ERA, um, but uh, he had a a, a seven point four strikeouts per nine and and he had he walked more than two per nine. FIP was actually three point seven four, 
So that sounds like a, a really good argument for, you know, he was pretty much the same guy, um, except that his luck was totally off, uh, mostly home runs. And um, and that's what inflated his, his ERA. But, you know, there's a lot of things going on there right? where, you know, despite an above average swing strike rate, he spent his third year in a row with a, with a below average strikeout rate. Um, you know, we always knew that he would be Homer. I, you know, he'd be a Homer problem guy because he was an extreme fly ball guy and he plays in the AL East. So, you know, another year of home run problems was not that surprising. Um, but, um, you know, there's just so much going on. I think from the main thing that I've seen is that he pitches too much on the outside. Um, and I saw Jason Coletti did a thing on this where he just throws to the outside, he throws the change up to the outside, he throws the fastball to the outside. And everyone's just going the other way on him. And, um, you know, he, when he tried to, when he came back up, um, he tried to, he tried to throw inside and establish that. And, uh, his September strikeout rate was the best of the year. Um, unfortunately he still gave up almost two home runs per nine. Um, so, you know, there's, he's just really messed up. The thing that, the only thing that I see that's help, hopeful is the 9.6 swing strike percentage. Yeah. And he's always had a higher swinging strike percentage than his strikeout rate, meaning that his swinging strike percentage suggested a higher strikeout rate than he's actually posted which makes me think, I mean, it, it probably is a case that he just doesn't get a whole lot of called strikes. And, and which is weird because he does throw a curveball 15% of the time. Changeup, obviously, is a primarily a fastball change guy, and the changeup is more of a swing and miss. I mean, you don't really take a called strike for uh, a call, take a changeup for a called strike. That's not usually what the pitch is about. So that makes sense. But, Normally, though, when I look at a guy who has um, fewer strikeouts than swinging strike rates, I think of a guy like uh, Jaime Garcia, yeah. where they've chosen to throw the ball low in the zone, and even though they get swinging strikes, they usually get a ground ball before they get a strikeout. And Hiroki Kuroda is the same way. Yeah, so those guys, those guys could get more strikeouts, 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 <laughs> uh, if. <laughs> <laughs> if they uh, they could get more strikeouts if they threw high in the zone and gave up a few more homers. So I think they've decided I'm going to stay low in the zone, get ground balls, and and uh, and therefore maybe give up a strikeout or two. That's not what's going on with Hellickson. I mean, he's – and, you know, as far as uh, control goes, he's always had great control. I wonder if he's maybe in the zone too much, you know, and uh, and he can't get people reaching or something. Yeah, but this is a new problem for him. I mean, his last two years, his BABIPs were well below the league average, and and there would be no type type of uh, possibility that you you would think maybe he's in the zone too often. But now he's coming off a bad year, and maybe something changed. And now that you think maybe now he's in the zone too often, I mean, what has changed with him these last two years that all of a sudden? His luck has run out. So I, I'm, I'm really curious because obviously I project players and I don't know how to project him next year. I don't know if the luck from – or the, the low BABIP, the high strand rate, I don't know if there was any skill in that and if I should assume a lower than league average BABIP next year or if this year proves that he never had the skill to begin with. Yeah, you know – I think that it would be really hard to, uh, to, to project him. And I think basically you just have to fall back on what happens in, in, 
in, in across baseball and just give him a league average Babbitt, really. Um, the, uh, you know, looking at the outcomes for his pitches, his changeup is still a very good pitch. It gets 20% whiffs. That's, that's a good pitch. Um, and, you know, it's not a ground ball pitch, though, so it's going to give up some home runs. Um, and, uh, and, you know, I guess one of the things is he can't control his curve. I mean, it's, it has a high ball rate. Um, so I don't, I don't, I would say that, um, I, I would project him into league average strand rates and, and Babbitt, but you know, there would be a little something in there for me. There might be an asterisk there where I'm like, Hey, if I'm going to like a guy that has one good pitch, then I'm probably going to like a guy who has uh, a good changeup. I think it's pretty safe to say we both agree that Jeremy Hellickson is an enigma. I mean, that's the bottom line. <laughs> and, and it's funny because if you look at his strikeout and walk percentages, then you would be left with a picture of an intriguing breakout candidate. His strikeout percentage in his first three full seasons has risen every year. His walk percentage has dropped every single year, and his Sierra has dropped every single year. Those are really good trends, and yet his ERA has gone from 295 to 310 to 517. So, mm-hmm. I mean, he's just been a head-scratcher. Well, it looks like we already got Steamer for next year, and Steamer says 418-131. Yeah, Steam, uh, I mean, guys like Jeremy Hellickson and Matt Cain, Steamer are, is always going to be off on them because they don't expect these types of pitchers to sustain the type of luck that they've had throughout their careers. Now, Matt Cain obviously did exactly what Jeremy Hellickson did. I mean, he's been living off of Low BABIPs, low home number fly ball, it all came crashing down this year. So you wonder how much of it was luck in the past. But Steamer doesn't usually expect that luck to continue. And so Steamer is going to usually project a higher ERA for them than every other system. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, for what it's worth, Alexson doesn't really have the same infield fly ball skill probably as Kane. And um, they both pitch in pitchers' parks, but uh, Kane pitches in the AOS. So. Um, I know, I know. I mean, NL, yeah, NLS. So, um, you know, they, they have – he has better situation around him. You know, it's interesting that you talked about Hellickson throwing to the outside edge of the plate too frequently because the next player we're going to talk about essentially did only that for most of the season with major success. Uh, Michael Waka yesterday once again pitching – a one-hitter so close to another no-hitter. This is two games in a row that he always pitched a no-hitter. And I don't remember if we mentioned him as a guy last week who could potentially boost their draft stock. We may have. I know we named a couple of young pitchers. He's he's one of the guys that you know would have been obvious because he had a very good rookie season. Only nine starts, but, but excellent. So Dave Cameron actually published a very interesting article talking about the fact that Waka barely threw inside yesterday and and basically all season long he has not thrown very much on the inside half of the play and I think it's pretty darn impressive how dominant he's been using half of the plate so the question now is is he going to have to start throwing inside more often to maintain that level of success or is he going to just decide to do so anyway just because uh, players are going to figure out, oh, he's only going to throw me the outside, I'm going to look there, and now he's going to 
sneak balls on the inside more often just to mess with their heads. Yeah, I think he's going to have to adjust. I mean, I think it's probably something that he has set up, um, you know, to succeed at the beginning. But uh, maybe that's what's going on with Helixson is that, you know, I think that there's a – in order to keep succeeding, you have to keep adjusting. And I think that's one of the things that we saw, you know, just to, you know, mess this up a little bit. But th- something I saw with Josh Reddick where, you know, I talked to him about his swing. and He's like, I've got an uppercut swing. That's who I am. That's I can't do anything about it when I'm going good. I'm going to hit 30 homers when I'm not. I'm not. And, you know, that's that's uh, that sounds like something. I don't think that's what I would want to hear out of my out of a a key player on my team, because, you know, I talked to Josh Donaldson. He was like, no, I I worked on my swing plane and, you know, I tried to hit uh, more grounders because I wanted to have a more of a line drive stroke. You know, you talk to Votto, he's like, well, I was doing it one way and I thought about it and I thought about it and I tried it this, the other way and I think this is better. I think the best players adjust a lot and, and, and adjust from season to season and game to game. And I think that Michael Walker is doing this now because it's working. And I hope that um, he adjusts in the future. Yeah, so it's just amazing how he's performed so well doing that because usually – you would expect that it's a crafty lefty who basically lives on the outside part of the plate. I, I think of Jamie Moyer, Tom Glavin. I mean, that's who you think of, the, the soft-throwing lefties, because usually when you throw inside, you want it to be a hard fastball. You don't really want to throw you know, an 87-mile-an-hour fastball inside because that's going to get crushed. So Walker doesn't seem to have the type of stuff. He seems like he has much better stuff that he doesn't need to live on the outside part of the plate. So it's weird. Yeah, well, you know, it keeps homers down, um, even though he has an average ground ball rate. So, um, I mean, in general, most pitchers uh, talk about that, and, and most pitching coaches talk about that. And I think, in specific, um, his pitching coach in particular likes pitching to the low and outside corner. So, um, I don't think that um, he's going to get much counsel different. But I think you do have to go bust people inside every once in a while. And even if it is 87 or 88, or in Helixson's case, 90, um, you know, if you throw if you throw a, an 85 mile an hour uh, changeup on the outside corner, and you and then you throw a 90 mile an hour fastball on the inside corner, uh, those are going to look very different. Yeah, and, uh, and you can you can you can sneak them by them because you know the of the relative speed. So, um, I, I just think that I I think you know I love that piece, but I, you know the one thing that I would quibble with Cameron is just that. I doubt, I doubt that he could do this his whole career. And, it, you know, I don't know if Cameron was saying that, but he, he um, I mean, he just seemed to say, like, oh, it's been working, but it's only been 64 innings, so. Yeah, it reminds me of Garrett Cole, for example, a guy who's told, like, just early on, focus on your fastball, your fastball command, that's kept his strikeouts down, and then when he was able to finally bust out the rest of his arsenal, his strikeouts went up. Maybe Waka was just kind of, it's early in his career. Let's start out focusing on commanding the outside part of the strike zone. Once he settles in and he performs well doing that, let's break out the inside part of the plate and and really show how good he is. Yeah, I mean, a guy with an 11% swing strike rate, you know, he could even have a better strikeout rate than he has. And if you look back to his um, AAA strikeout totals and you see that he only struck out uh, about league average, maybe a little bit better. Um, yeah, it was he was better than league average, but he wasn't like uh, outstanding. Um, 
you know, one thing that I do know about that time in AAA was that he was working on curveball. Um, and he, you know, he threw his curveball in AAA much more than the five percent he threw on it in the in the in the majors. So, um, so I think that affected his ability because he could have just gone to the to the changeup and just struck everybody out. I'm pretty sure. So, um, you know, he did the curveball, and I think that's sort of what's going on here a little bit. It's it's very much like Cole, where the the organization has a philosophy. They spouse that to all their pitchers because you know in 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 some that philosophy works. When you look across all pitchers, it works. And you know, with you know, some pitchers can rise above that by taking that and then also adding something to it. And I think Cole, it was very good for him to to focus on his fastball and fastball command. For him to bring the slider and the change back in more often now is really gonna um, you know I think Cole is is ready for explosion next year. Speaking of Garrett Cole, why don't we compare the trio of young pitchers in Waka, Garrett Cole, and Sonny Gray, all three on playoff teams. Who do you like best of this trio next year? Garrett Cole. Yeah, Garrett. I'd say the, th- it's the same thing. Yeah, Garrett Cole, he's got the most velocity, um, and uh, he's got three um, legit secondary pitches. So, I mean, yeah, actually, you know, I shouldn't be so uh, sure, sure of myself because I, I do actually love change-ups and Waka's change-up is better. So I would say that Garrett Cole and Michael Waka are closer together for me than Sonny Gray. Sonny Gray is a uh, distinct third place. I also like Garrett Cole's ground ball rate. He's nearly 50%. And so that, for me, helps put him above Waka. Yeah, I think if you put his sinker and his um, slider together – as two as his, as his main two pitches, um, you know they might be ahead of Waka's fastball changeup because because Waka's fastball is probably not as nice as Jared Cole's. But um, um, you know the changeup, if it's a dynasty league and stuff, the changeup I think is a healthier pitch. It's a great platoon buster. It should be um, a ground ball pitch for him eventually. So um, you know there are reasons to like Waka too, and I, I put them one and two. But I I have my I have some doubts about uh, Sonny Gray, actually. Yeah, what's amazing about Garrett Cole is he posted essentially the exact same ex-fips against both lefties and righties and doesn't really throw his changeup very often. So that is pretty impressive. Waka actually allowed a lower, by far, Woba to lefties than righties, though his ex-fip was a bit higher, but it was still good. So the fact that these two young pitchers have absolutely no platoon issues whatsoever is a really good sign for their future. You were just leading me right into my doubts about Sonny Gray, weren't you? <laughs> well, I would like to hear, so please share what you're doubts <laughs> I, I assume it relates to the fact that he struggles versus lefties, but I have not brought up his splits just yet. Yeah, well, I, I haven't. I, I'm not looking at his splits. Uh, I, I'm sort of uh, doing this from um, from watching him because I've I've watched him a lot this year. Um, you know, going to games in uh, in Oakland to to cover baseball, and um, I I've watched in particular his uh, approach. I know that uh, from a pitch by pitch peripheral standpoint, the curveball loses almost half its whiffs um, against against lefties, and I know that looking from looking at um, his curveball for the piece I did on him. Um, that his curveball has double-digit movement in both the vertical and horizontal areas. So it's not a 12-6. People it's like slurvy, like Jose Fernandez. It is. It is. It has a lot of, uh, of left-to-right break. 
and since and since it loses half its whiffs against lefties, and I've seen him, you know, try to attack lefties with the sinker with the changeup. Um, I know that he thinks about lefties, and I know that he's a little bit worried. And you know, he told me in his interview that the changeup is there some days, and some days it's not. Right now, he's settling in with a changeup that's 88. Um, so it could be a ground ball changeup. He could be a kind of a different pitcher where he's a strikeout pitcher against righties and a ground ball pitcher against lefties. That that could be in his future. And if he does that, then I have a lot of confidence in him. But I haven't seen that yet, and he's still sort of searching for that changeup. Well, Sonny Gray was much better against righties, but 328 xFIP versus lefties. So those potential issues have not manifested just yet. But again, it's a tiny sample size. Um, and looking deep behind the numbers and what could be is necessary, basically, to project him moving forward. So that is good information to have. Yeah, I would, um, you know, one of, the, one of the things that, I mean, if you look at, you know, his strikeout rate drops against lefties, his walk rate doubles, um, and, you know, this year he managed to not have as many homers um, uh, from lefties, but um, if I was projecting him, actually you can see his ground ball rate is higher against lefties, so there is that potential for him to be more of a ground ball guy against lefties, uh, more of a strikeout guy against righties. It's, it's actually in the numbers right now. Um, and, you know, the nice thing about uh, Sonny Gray is that he has the most extreme park helping him out. I mean, all that foul ground in Oakland, um, you know, it plays really big uh, most of the time when it's warm. Um, <clears throat> when it's warm there, sometimes the ball can get out. But, you know, a lot of times Oakland is cold and it's got it's got fog. So um, I would say, uh, you know, the, I like him best of the Oakland pitchers. And um, and I think that and I think all of the Oakland pitchers are uh, 12 team ownable um, because their park helps them out. And because at the very least, you can play them, you know, 60 to 75 percent of the time by, you know, playing them in Oakland and playing them in Seattle and that sort of thing. Um, but um, I do. I think Sonny Gray is the closest to being 100 um, percent startable, 100 percent 12 team ownable. Jared Parker just shed a tear that you're cheating on him. <laughs> well, I'm glad that, you know, just to, to bring him up, I'm glad that Jared Parker turned it around a little bit uh, and made me look like less of an idiot. <laughs> um, you know, just personally, I'm glad for that. I don't know about for him. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, it, it does go to show that, you know, having a good changeup, basically, that's his best pitch. And it's, it's like sometimes it's only pitch. When it's his only pitch, then he, he gets into trouble. But uh, when he can locate the fastball, and he's got the changeup going, uh, it almost doesn't matter about any of his other pitches. So, um, you know, I, I, I'm, he showed up basically the same year, you know, this year as last year. So I, I, uh, I don't know that um, Parker is ever going to be an ace, even though he gets decent swing strike numbers. Yeah, you just got to hope that those, I guess he's just missing some call strikes. And, and it doesn't seem like that, that kind of stuff ever comes suddenly you get more called strikes. So unfortunately, unless he learns a new pitch or, or he changes something, if he just continues doing what he's doing now, that strikeout rate boost probably is not going to come. One thing that I would be really intrigued about is if he got a really good framer behind the plate. Because the, um, 
the A's have pretty bad catchers. I mean, across the board, their catchers are bad. I mean, John Jaso might be a DH next year. Um, vote, you know, like a lot of people question if he can even be a catcher. And Kurt Suzuki was like one of the worst defensive catchers across the metrics that I saw. So um, I don't know. I think Derek Norris has a little bit more ability. But um, if they had like a Lucroy style guy behind the plate or if Parker got traded to a team that because, you know, that's another thing about the a- owning A's and Dynasty. Um, they can get, they'll get traded any any time. I mean, Billy Bean will trade an Oakland pitcher, you know, tomorrow. Ah, I just found the guy. All right, here it is. You know what they need to do? They need to give a chance to Jeremy Brown, the Moneyball man. <laughs> then they'd really be Moneyballing, dude. He kind of looks like uh, Derek Norris in terms of – well, he, he actually makes better contact than Derek Norris. But offensively, he seems like a similar type of a player. I have no idea what his defensive reputation is, but he's enormous, so I can't imagine that he's great defensively. Yeah, well, framing, uh, according to Lucroy at least, framing, uh, a big thing of framing is how tall you are. So, Jeremy Brown is 5'10". There you go. Maybe he's a good framer. No, 5'10 is short. Oh, yeah, saying so, the taller, the so shorter is better? Yeah, because um, Lucroy says that you, in order to get, um, the, the best strikes are at the low end of the thing. In order to get those, you have to get low. And uh, it's easier for shorter people to get to the low, to frame the low strike. Well, then, you know, it's time to stop dreaming about becoming a catch framer. That's not going to be your future career. <laughs> Although it might be for me because I'm like half your height. <laughs> I'll pitch to you. Oh, all right. That works. All right. So yesterday, Zach Sanders posted the final end of season dollar values for every player. But more interestingly, you posted this morning the value-adjusted leaderboard, and that compared preseason ADP from Fantasy Pros with the final end-of-season ranking to see who actually was the best value. And and that's the type of stuff I love because it satisfies my craving for math and quantifying everything. And instead of just, you know, coming up with random names, thinking that, oh, Alfonso Soriano was really good, he outperformed. Yeah, I know he outperformed, but... Who was the real MVP? Was it Soriano? I don't know, but now we know. And the number one guy, by your method at least, was Josh Donaldson, who we were just slightly talking about. So he actually ranked 36th overall, probably was undrafted in every 12-team mixed league, and basically was only drafted in AL-only leagues. I mean, I don't think in Tell Wars he was drafted, and he certainly wasn't drafted in my labor league because I actually picked him up uh, like two weeks into the season, luckily enough. So Josh Donaldson, 24 home runs, 301 batting average. Does he have any chance whatsoever of repeating this type of performance next year? Um, I mean, the thing that leaps out for me is that almost every single one of his skills has uh, a minor league corollary. Like, you know, so this year he had a 199 ISO. Um, in AAA this year, he had, or last year, he had a 263 ISO. Um, in AAA in 2010, he had a 238 ISO. Some of those are, are nice hitters' parks, but, you know, you, you actually see a lot of 200 ISOs show up in different parks across his minor league um, career. So 
I think that he could actually have a 200-ish ISO, and 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 that makes sense to me. Uh, 11% walk rate. He had double-digit walk rates up and down his minor league career. So yes, it's a little bit higher than some of them, but it, you know it's also lower than some of his walk rates. So I like that. The the one you know 16.5% strikeout rate. Well, you know there are years in the minor leagues where he had he had strikeouts like rates like that. So it could just be you know finding his, himself in the major leagues. I would say probably. Of all the numbers to, that I would sort of regress a little bit, I would regress his strikeout rate, which would mean, and his, his batting average on balls in play, which is 333. So if I regress both of those um, a little bit towards the, the league mean, um, that means his batting average is going to drop. So I would be most comfortable calling him a 280 hitter with 20 to 25 homers, um, good art runs in RBI, a couple steals, uh, and, uh, and a boon in, uh, on base percentage leagues. Yeah, I would say that the Steamer projections that are already out, that's exciting. I can't believe that Steamer has projections already for next year. Lots of fun to – I mean, that's going to lead to a, a whole bunch of fun articles already. So that's exciting. But I would say that the Steamer projection, I think I'm a little – slightly more optimistic. I think you hit it on the head with the Babbitt, the 333. That's going to regress. I don't think his batted ball profile lends itself to that – much of an inflated BABIP. Uh, I think the strikeout rate is going to increase ever so slightly as well. I kind of like Steamer's projection there. So, yeah, I'm going to say basically 280, 22, 23. I think the, the home runs, the power is pretty legit. So for the most part, I think he could come very close to a repeat, but more 280 rather than 300, which is pretty much what you said as well. Yeah, and I think... Um... You know, I think that's going to be that's going to be really interesting. He, uh, you know, I, I I updated my article and put a, a third, a fourth column in that was top fifty. If you finish in the top fifty, and that way you can sort, um, so you can just see the best values in the top fifty. Um, and uh, and Donaldson ended up thirty six. I'm I'm fairly confident he'll be a top fifty player again next year. Um, so I, I traded for him in a in a um, in an on-base percentage dynasty league in particular, uh, just because I thought, you know, there, here's a guy. I think, you know, if anything, I, I like that uh, better than a 345 on-base percentage from Steamer. Um, so I think he could do 350, 360. And, um, you know, it just depends a little bit on his streaks with the home runs. I mean, when you're a guy that can hit 20 home runs, you're a guy that can hit 25, you know. Um, there's not that much of a difference between the two, I don't think. So, um, you know, if the streaks come at the right time, um, you know, and if he's in Texas when he's hot, for example. Um, so I, I, I think uh, this is a guy who's going to be a top half third baseman. And, uh, and I actually think that he's an interesting um, guy to buy even at, at right now because when I was buying him, you know, I, I didn't get the impression that his owner thought that he was going to repeat the season. Yeah, that's a good point. It's a good buy high because I'm sure most – the initial jerk reaction is going to be that it's a fluke. Yeah, and they're gonna they're gonna uh, they're gonna see they're gonna see that 241 average uh, in the past and uh, and and think oh he's just gonna go back to 240 or whatever. I, I don't really see that. I mean, even if he regresses, he'll he'll be he'll strike out less than league average. So uh, that usually and if you have power and some speed, that usually doesn't that doesn't lend itself to a bad batting average. I'm going to throw out there middle of round, middle to late round five is what I'm going with in, in terms of what his value will be next year. Are you a little more optimistic than that? 
Yeah, I'll take him before that. I mean, like I said, I, I, I'm pretty sure he'll end up being top 50 again. So uh, I'll take him in the fourth round sometime. If, if I see him going in mocks in the fifth, um, then, uh, then I'll take him in the fourth, end of the fourth. All right, next up in the value all-stars is Matt Carpenter. Amazing to me that he finished as the 19th most valuable player. I was down on Matt Carpenter. I don't know if I ever actually wrote any specific article. I may have mentioned him in some Pods Picks article as somebody that I was less bullish on. I'm not sure. I'll have to look back. But I was not a fan of Matt Carpenter, and he proved me way wrong. But here's a guy that I think could take a huge fall next year. I mean, his value is basically all because of his 126 runs scored. Obviously, you can't expect that to happen again, even though he does have a 392 on base percentage, and that doesn't seem that much of a fluke. Yeah, but, you know, one thing that people forget is that uh, Carpenter is a bit of a, a late bloomer, or not a late bloomer. I mean, the, the Cardinals do this with everybody, but he's a, a guy that came up closer to his peak. So he turned. he's turning 27 this November, and I think this is pretty much we're seeing, like, close to peak Park Carpenter. I don't see a lot of room for um, uh, power, you know, power after this. Um, he could maybe hit uh, 12, 13, 14 next year. Uh, I don't think he's going to hit much more than that. He doesn't have any speed. So what you're saying is, yeah, runs on base percentage. And his batting average was, you know, there's a 359 Babbitt. Okay, so now two years in a row he's had like a 340-plus Babbitt. Um, I'd be much more comfortable, you know, maybe even a lower uh, Babbitt than the Steamer one. The Steamer one is 334, giving him a 294 batting average. I might, I might regress his Babbitt to like 320 or something just to be safer. I think that's fair. Check out that batted ball profile. He popped it up once. Once, I'll see you. I mean, this is vintage Joey Votto, a line drive machine, pretty close ground ball and fly ball rates, and no pop-ups. I mean, that's a high BABIP if there ever was one. Yeah, the problem with that is that we, you know, Joey Votto aside, we haven't we haven't yet seen uh, a great uh, year-to-year correlation on infield flies for batters. So there are people that have great and, and terrible infield fly years, you know. So, um, I mean, until he's Joey Votto, he's not Joey Votto, you know what I mean? Yeah. This so, is- I mean, okay, so maybe the 330 is all right. Then he has him a 290 average. You know, obviously, Steamer's projecting him into 512 plate appearances because uh, he, only, he only had 340 his rookie year. Um, if you gave him seven, 700 plate appearances again, um, you would have very close to the same numbers, just, you know, maybe 105 runs instead of 126. Um, still, it's a weird, it's a weird package. I mean, it's a weird package. I mean, doesn't it remind you of Placido Polanco when he was in his prime? Ten home runs, five steals, three hundred batting average from a middle infield position. Do you and really want to take teams? He was on good teams a lot. I mean, he was in the middle of that Philadelphia lineup. For yeah, a while. I mean, do you really want to take Placido Polanco in you know the top five rounds? I certainly don't. It's just. You know, if there are any categories that I ignore, and it might be to my detriment, there, it's runs and, uh, and wins. And, you know, sometimes, and what's very interesting is that I find a lot of um, cheap sleepers on, on bad teams, you know, because they don't get as much attention. You know, people don't, people don't know about the, the, the next. I mean, going into the season, there was probably less attention on Garrett Cole than there should have been. Um, 
you know, just because he was pitching for Pittsburgh and they weren't supposed to contend. So, you know, when I when I'm looking for 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 players, I'm looking for guys who will give me home runs and who have some speed and uh, who have batting average. That's sort of how I look. And then I, I, you know, I look up sometimes on my great teams and I've won every category but wins. I mean, that's what I did this year in, in two leagues. That you know, One of them I won, one of them I didn't. If I had you know, paid a little more attention to wins, that one of those teams had CC on it. You, know? <laughs> you can't chase wins. And I think chasing runs is bad, too. Well, I mean, chasing runs, it, it all comes down to just leadoff hitters. Leadoff hitters are generally going to be among the league leaders. So if you have a lot of leadoff hitters, you're probably doing well in steals and you're doing well in runs. Well, I think there's some team stuff, too, which is why I ignore it a lot of times. Because... If you if you uh, had the leadoff hitter for the Mets, <laughs> if you had any hitter for the Mets, you probably did not do well. <laughs> well, how about this? Matt Carpenter led all of baseball with 55 doubles. It'd be interesting to see if any of those turn into home runs next year, and we see a power surge because, I mean, that's been it's been studied before. I believe Baseball HQ and the forecaster did a study, and they found that it doesn't happen the way you would think. You would think, oh, as a a hitter grows into his body. Some of those doubles are going to turn into home runs, and that doesn't really happen. What just usually happens is the doubles just regress and they just fall off with no actual uh, increase in home runs. But, I mean, that doesn't happen 100% of the time. So maybe in Matt Carpenter's case, 55 becomes 40 and 11 becomes 18 next year. Who knows? All right. I mean, that would be that would be pretty exciting for his value. Yeah, um, it would be. And so – I just, you know, when I look at his past, I don't really see it. Yeah, and I I think it would be very hard for him not to be a bust next year. All right, how about our last guy we're going to talk about offensively as part of the value all-stars is Gene Segura. And Segura really fell off. I mean, it was pretty obvious he was going nuts with the power in the first half. He had 11 first-half home runs, only one in the second half. Only batted 241 in the second half versus 325 in the first half. So he's a guy that, based on his finish, I think may actually be undervalued next year. And oh, he, yeah, people. He finished yeah. 47th overall, which is like end of round four value. So yeah, so what were you gonna say? Where do you see him next year? Uh, I, yeah, I'm pretty comfortable with that. I mean, when you look at his year yearly totals in some, uh, there's not really too much of a reason to say he couldn't do that again. I guess. He is a bit of a batting average risk. If the if the power craters a little bit, then he could be kind of a slappy singles guy, and um, you know that's why Steamer puts him into a 270, 279 uh, batting average. But even at 279, you know he stole 44 bases with a high percentage. You know that was uh, coming off of a, a year that he stole 37 across two levels in 2012. So I think you can safely put him um, with more than 35 steals. You know, even if he regresses further in the power category than Seamer has him, he hits seven homers, 35 stolen bases. That's Jose Reyes. Yeah, I still like him for next year, but there is a risk. He barely walked this year, and even batting 294, his on-base percentage was still only 329. I don't think that number two slot in the order is a guarantee. Aoki is going to be their leadoff hitter, and between Ricky Weeks and Scooter Jeanette, those are two guys who could fit the mold as a two-hitter. So if Gene Segura gets off to a slow start, he can find himself back into the eight-hole, and that's going to kill his value. That's an interesting point. I mean, uh, with Ioki, 
you know, they have three guys that could they could play at the top of the lineup. Um, and if he starts out, you know, with his, uh, you know, because he in in 2012 it was only 166 plate appearances, but he had a 300 plus BABIP and a 258 batting average, and uh, you can't forget that. So um, you know, if he did that again, just started like that. Just if he was eventually going to still be Segura, but he he had 150 plate appearances where he started with a 250 average, a 310 on base percentage. He might not be, you know, leading off anymore. Yeah, so I can imagine a scenario where he's slightly undervalued because he pretty much replicates what he did this year, or he ends up slumping early on, gets dropped in the order, never recovers, and he becomes a bust. I think it could go either way. Yeah, but you know, with somebody with that many steals, it's really a siren song for managers. I feel like they'll find a way to keep him out of the eighth spot. So. Um, you know, I think uh, Aoki has, you know, a little bit of power. Ricky Weeks, I think Ricky Weeks could actually be a decent uh, five-hole hitter, you know, because he has power. So uh, I think they'll 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 argue their way into keeping him in the in the leadoff hole just because he looks quote unquote like a leadoff hitter. So um, I think uh, I think he's fairly safe in the top five, in, in the fifth round or so. All right, before we sign off, I want to bring back. The article I published a couple of weeks ago looking at opposite field percentage in BABIP. And uh, we keep on alluding to this Joey Votto stuff about going the opposite way. And what I found was a positive correlation between opposite field percentage and BABIP. But the odd thing, the thing that I kept on asking you, you know, that you really weren't sure about is that the BABIP on opposite field balls was actually lowest between – center field balls, and pulled balls. So that made no sense to me. How it can have a positive correlation, meaning the higher the oppo percentage, the higher the BABIP, yet the BABIP on the opposite field hits was lowest. So what I just realized, and I have yet to actually look at the data to see if I was right, but I wanted to hear what your opinion was, is that maybe if you have a higher opposite field percentage, then your pull and your center BABIP is higher. In aggregate, so let's take the top ten in oppo percentage. Their pull BABIP would be higher than the bottom ten in oppo percentage. You understand what I'm saying there? Yeah, for sure. And I think that the uh, I think that the mechanism that that, that does explain this. I think it is um, the shifts. Uh, the shifts. Yeah. So I think yeah. I think what's going on is that the the high pull hitters. And I, I think what we may want to just do is stop focusing on oppo and uh, just put in a negative. Um, a negative pull number. So um, if we just take uh, your pull percentage and 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 somehow find what the correlation is, and then put that put that into our ex BABIP, so that you know you have your uh, your your fly balls or your your ground balls, your infield hits, that sort of stuff. Each of those has like a number associated with it. Then you then you have a negative number for pull. So if you have a really high pull percentage, then you drag your ex BABIP down. Yeah, I mean, what it comes down to is that if you can go to every field, the defense is not going to shift. They don't know how to defend you. They're just going to play it straight up because you can hit it all over the field. Whereas if you're basically a pull hitter, you know where you're going to be hitting it to, and it's a lot easier to defend that hitter. Yeah, and I think, you know, we're seeing in the playoffs right now, just to to bring it into, um, you know, the games you'll see, is that – Matt Adams and Carlos Beltran um, have become. Carlos Beltran has become more pull happy 
you know, as his career has progressed. He's kind of an old man now, so he pulls more now, and uh, he's sort of trying to pull one out and uh, and take a walk, and that's basically Carlos Beltran. Um, so I think, uh, and Matt Adams, you know, pulls a lot. Both of those, those are the two only guys in the Cardinals lineup that are being shifted right now. And, um, and you know, I think that, you know, some people, you could overvalue Matt Adams um, if you looked at his batting average on balls and play for this year because his batting average cratered in the second half on balls and play, cratered in the second half when he started getting shifted. So um, I think uh, it is a risk uh, for pull hitters. And I think if, if, if you know, I, w- I want us to, to find a way to get pull percentage in the ex-BABIP, but if we don't, I'm definitely going to put an asterisk next to all the, you know, the top 25 pull hitters. I'm going to put an asterisk next to their name. And uh, and remember in drafts that probably their batting average is going to come in a little bit lower than their projections. The interesting thing is that Eric Hosmer last year had a 255 bad bit, and we all blamed it on the shift. And yet this year he's back up to 335. So I think he's an interesting guy to dig into. Did he go to the opposite field more often this year? What happened? What explains that decline last year and then the surge this year? I just pulled up. My uh, my my list of uh, pull percentage guys. So the top ten in pull percentage, uh, and I think you wouldn't you would kind of uh, you'd figure all these guys for lower batting average. But there's a couple names in here that uh, you should watch out for. So Carlos Quentin is number one. Uh, never gonna give him a good batting average. Will Venable, Josh Willingham, Aaron Hill. Uh, and he's he's had some years with absolutely terrible BABIPs. And, you know, for me, he's a batting average risk because he not only is he a pull hitter, but he's an extreme fly ball hitter. So the two of those things together in a package where he's, you know, that's not, like Carlos Quentin. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, Carlos Quentin at second base is OK. It's fine, but it's not somebody I'm going to pay elite prices for or, or sort of go after. It's the kind of guy that will be like. Oh, you know, I got the new Dan Ugla. Fine, I'll take it. <laughs> um, so, uh, speaking of Dan Ugla, he's uh, seventh on the list. Um, Chris Carter comes after Aaron Hill. Jimmy Rollins, uh, who's an old man, has another reason uh, not to believe in his batting average projection. Ugla is seventh. Jose Bautista, we knew about. He's eighth. Raul Ibanez, um, just trying to jerk it out. Ninth. Justin Smoke is tenth. Uh, I'll give you a couple extra. Carlos Santana, Edwin Encarnacion, Garrett Jones, Chase Headley, and, uh, of course, Mike Moustakis. Wow. That's a really good list because that has a lot of the consistently low BABIP guys on there. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Matt, Matt Joy, um, right after that. And then Carlos Beltran is 19th. So I think uh, I think I would project Carlos Beltran into like a 270 batting average next year, or, or not much better than that. So yeah, uh, he's had a lot of years with uh, lower than league average BABIPs. So now that yeah. and, and you know, I, it never occurred to me while watching him that he was such a pull hitter. Maybe he's been doing it his whole career. It's possible. It's not something that I really thought about in my younger days either. Fangraphs has enlightened me. <laughs> All right, well, that's a wrap, folks. So join us again on Thursday for more fantasy fun on The Sleeper and the Bust. For Eno Saris, I'm Mike Podhorzer. Thanks for tuning in.